everyone. Welcome to Stage Directions. I'm Ashley Griffin, your theatrical Hermione Granger. And today I have a wonderful, wonderful guest. His name is Matthew Ryan Limerick. He's a phenomenal artist, costume designer. He's worked for Disney. We both worked um, on Wicked together. And I just love having conversations with him, but I thought he was a really great guest today to talk about something I've been wanting to talk about for a while. Um, that's been a big conversation topic in in the entertainment world at large, but especially in the theater world, which is about sizeism in the theater industry, in everything, but especially the theater industry. So, hey, Maddie Ryan, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for being here. Hi, I'm so happy to be here with you. This is a topic that I could scream into the wind about for hours. So I'm so happy you invited me on to talk. <laughs> well, thank you for coming. And we'll have to do this again sometime and talk about costumes and lots yes. of fun things. Um, Cause this is a mildly depressing topic of conversation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sizeism has always been a thing, but I feel like it's finally kind of starting to have the conversations that it needs mm -hmm. to have. And especially recently, it, it got us an especial boost by, I think it was an article in the New York Times, I don't remember who wrote it or exactly what it was, but basically somebody said that one of, uh, alleged that something along the lines of that one of the reasons that Broadway is taking its time to reopen is that the performers have all gained weight during COVID, mm -hmm. um, which I have so many feelings about that statement. Yeah. Um, but that was just something that happened recently that has just sort of especially propelled this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so I know both you and I have dealt with this um, in in differing ways um which is one of the reasons why i thought it would be nice to have sort of differing perspectives on it mm -hmm. but um let me throw it to you to start um what if what experiences are you aware of that you would be comfortable sharing um either with you or other things that you've mm -hmm. seen um what do you think about this topic let me just throw it to you yeah absolutely thoughts. so i you know it's interesting um uh, I started as a performer, like many people do, mm -hmm. um, and uh, went to stage management and design from there and really found my footing in design. I did love performing. I do love performing, but you know, it's when it's not that thing you wake up and want to do every day. I, you know, you want to get out of the way for my friends that like, uh, you know, when you're living in New York and your friends who are like passionate and want to do these things. And you're like, God, I can't do another open call. I want to get out of the way for those people. Um, but it was something really early on. I went to the American Musical and Dramatic Academy yes, you uh, did. in New York, which they make you feel in auditions that it is super prestigious. It's, it's a super, you know, it's a super, I don't want to say honorable thing, but it was, a, it's an honor to be able to go there when really they take just about everybody and what you get out of the program is what you get out of it. And I was a cocky Southerner who felt they were way more talented than they were. Uh, not saying I'm not talented, but you know, when you're, <laughs> you're a little lazy, talented. well, when you're a little lazy and don't want to work on your craft, like as an adult, like as a grown person, now I go, I did not put enough work into my craft in order to be like, Oh, I'm just not booking. But <laughs> You know, I came from an incredible, incredibly supportive theater community in Raleigh, North Carolina, where um, just amazing theater is made. And people say community theater, and you you think of Mamma Mia on flatbed trucks in a church parking lot. Um, but so many people start in community theater, and the community theater that happens in Raleigh is 
phenomenal. Like, uh, particularly Raleigh Little Theater. I'm going to shout them out uh, and Haskell Fitzsimmons, who is no longer with us, unfortunately. But uh, he was the artistic director of Raleigh Little Theater, and they run much like regional theaters do across the country. And so I got to kind of cut my teeth there, do some really fantastic shows with them mm-hmm. where I didn't feel like my size hindered Mm-hmm. where they would put me creatively and like I love an ensemble role honestly ensemble in my opinion is much more fun than being a lead in the show just because mm-hmm. you're in so many scenes I love a quick change in those things and so you know doing things like they do this great Christmas version of Cinderella that's like a panto and doing Fulmonti mm-hmm. and you're in town and some of these great shows with them um kind of you know uh, it was a little shock when i got to acting conservatory what amda calls acting conservatory it's very different now Mm -hmm. um but like because i was quote unquote older i was 23 when i started there 22 i didn't get put with like the 19 year 18 and 19 year olds i got put with like the 21s and ups. And so we had an amazing group of people, uh, including Britta Filter, who, uh, who would go on to be on RuPaul's Drag Race. She, she's great. Shout out to Britta. Um, but like, so the head of the musical theater program was my uh, musical theater professor. And and we had, you know, a delightful but very difficult and curmudgeonly acting professor both semesters. And they just did not know what to do with me. And I think part of why I kind of shut down there and didn't do a lot of my work and things was because I wasn't, I like, you know, when you're 22, you don't want to be handed a mobbler from the baker's wife to, to perform in as beautiful as some of the, that Schwartz score is, or, you know, you don't want to be told that like, or in our second semester, the first time I really felt it was when I, Amda, nobody talks about how unhealthy the lifestyle is there. And so like looking back, I had wasted away in my first semester. Like I was still chubby, but like, like my arms were sickly skinny. My legs were sickly skinny. Um, like my face looked a little sallowed, but I loved how I felt and blah, blah, blah. But like being told second semester that I was too ugly to play Judd in Oklahoma. Oh my God. That Judd needed to be muscular. Yeah. That Judd needed to be muscular and hot. He needed to be dangerously attractive. But also when did, when did attractive equal a certain kind of hotness? Right. Like Like, well, and also looking at it, like the, I'm a baritone, I have some vocal damage. So I used to be a tenor baritone more is where I'm comfortably now. Baritone's really fun. And you know, as most of my baritones out there are probably screaming right now, not many people write baritones in contemporary musical True. theater. True. So when you go to the baritone bass parts in golden age musical theater, a lot of times they're the leading men mm-hmm. and the tenors are the character roles. Yeah. And so it was really funny seeing where they put me and you know, you have to do a project there where you listen through and you find 10 roles that you and songs from those roles that you could perform in workshop and class. And I said, lonely room from Oklahoma. I think, you know, uh, cause like Shuler Hensley who did the, um, National Theater Revival is not an unattractive man, but he's just hulking and he was scary and wonderful. And so I was like, listen, I can bring a lot of that same vibe and being a outwardly noticeably queer human who I hadn't started my gender identity (laughs) journey with that yet. But like, you know, it's one of those things that like, when you're looking through, I was like, cool, I could be nicely, nicely, I guess, but my tenor's not, you know, it's one of those things where you're going through, especially golden age, and figuring out contemporary musical theater things. It's like, uh, that was the first time that I started feeling it. And then at Amda, you're not allowed to audition in your first year for anything professionally while you're in New mm-hmm. York. You know, it's just the, the thing about 
which I get now that they were like, listen, most of you are from tiny podunk towns. You know nothing. We need to teach you. We need to rip you down and start rebuilding you before. Which is sort of the philosophy should. of almost every school, which I. Yeah, which I'm glad during this time of COVID, we're sitting here going, fuck the institution of theatrical <laughs> academia, fuck the theatrical uh, institutions, like let's start rebuilding this. So it's, this is actually a great time to have this conversation. It's a conversation a lot of people are having, mm -hmm. especially within costuming, uh, because we're the most affected by it. You know, yeah. choreographer maybe, but like the actor, it's the actor and the costumer really are the two that's most effective about right. body image and body size. And so that was the first time. And then so I started auditioning and I was quote unquote smart in the way I was going out for things that I knew I was good enough to get a callback for Brian and Avenue Q, the Cowardly Lion. Mm -hmm. um, uh, shout out to Bob Klein and the non-union hairspray oh. tour <laughs> when he was like, sure, you're 21. I'll see you for Edna. And I was like, great. Awesome. Let's do this, I guess. Um, you know, we're like going in and auditioning for Tenardier for Les Mis, but I'm in the room with men in their 50s who have awesome resumes. And I'm just sitting there with my sad little resume. But like, those were those times, but like being told that I wasn't fat enough to play Edna and Hairspray because they didn't want to pay for a bodysuit. Mm -hmm. So would I be willing to gain weight? And that's when I was just like shocked, but like I was moonlighting at night selling t-shirts for, for Broadway shows. And like, I worked, I was working guys and dolls at that point. Um, the, the ill-fated Lauren Graham revival by Des Mackinoff and like mm -hmm. Titus was the only like plus size dude in that show. And like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I was like, why am I striving in an industry that doesn't want to see me? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, average white, you know, male presenting person too, you know, we, we hadn't started the conversation of, you know, maybe not every ensemble needs to be full of all white people, except the token Brown girl and the token Brown boy. Right. Um, because that is where we are. But I think uh, long story long um so it's there that was as a performer and then so i tried to always take that into my life as a designer i've worked in casting i've directed and so i always 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 never limit body types when i'm behind that table and it's mm -hmm. my decision i never limited body types um when i directed last five years i looked at heavy set jamie's i looked at heavy set kathy's i looked at non-white jamie's and kathy's mm -hmm. um same with hair i tried to have as diverse body and gender and race cast as i could because it's important to those kinds of shows mm -hmm. um but as a costume designer something i get so discouraged by is the way that we've allowed directors and choreographers and casting directors to talk about actors bodies and so for me it's you know you and i spoke the other day it's not even just someone's too big or they're worried about if they have the stamina for it it's oh well she's so thin or he's so skinny he could never be a leading man he has no muscle because for some reason overly muscular bodies were starting to be like figured as like the most beautiful for broadway which like well, and I would I would I just, say that by and large, I, I think that that is for men, not always, but on the average. Definitely for men, yeah. Because my experience with this is it's a bit different. And I've, so I've always been like a very serious dancer. So I've mm -hmm. always been tiny. I've always been tiny, but I'm like, I'm five nine. So, I mean, I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not like a, you know, four nine pixie. Um, but I've always been tiny. I've always been very athletic. Um, mm -hmm. and I have been told horrible things about my body, mm -hmm. you know, and, and one of the things that really drove it home for me is I, um, because of various medical things, um, 
sometimes get very thin because of certain mm-hmm. medical things or whatnot. Mm-hmm. I have been flat out like told to my face, like, oh, we want you to be healthy, but don't gain any weight. Right. And I'm like, it's it like this isn't good for anybody to be mm-hmm. that tiny. Like it's it's not. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't it, it but then to like get rewarded for it makes me really frustrated. Um and- yeah. And the fact that they're pretending that they even give a shit about your health either Mm -hmm. is just, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, well, honey, it'd be so much healthier if you just lost a little weight or honey, if you just, you know, put a little muscle on, you'd be so much healthier. And it's like, nobody actually gives a shit about your health. And so they need to stop having that conversation, especially when, you know, it's something in your situation that you're very aware of. It is your body. You are painfully aware of what's happening with your body and it's one of those things that when they're just like oh yes queen you are so small yes we want to keep that but you need to be healthy eight shows a week and i want to throw out there that you know there are people who deal with similar issues because of an eating disorder or other Mm -hmm. things which is terrible and should never be encouraged that's not what i am dealing Mm -hmm. with um Mm -hmm. um and and you know i am i am still fit i'm still able to do everything as a performer i would you know and and all that it's just the idea that being smaller is rewarded kind of no mm-hmm. matter what and i i know people who have had eating disorders and it's been kind of quietly encouraged because it's yes. like well yeah like we don't want anything bad to happen but like we want you to keep looking that way mm-hmm. and at the point it's just i don't I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it's interesting for me because I, I mean, I am a dancer. I grew up as a dancer and there is always that conversation to be had when you're specifically talking about dance, about certain aesthetics and that it's about making the human body look a certain way and whatnot. And there is an element to that that I do think is true. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think it's been taken to a really awful extreme. And I mm-hmm. think that if you, especially if you trace dance history, you can see where that came from. I mean, if you look at the wonderful like ballet russe dancers they were all thin and fit but they weren't Mm -hmm. emaciated like they looked like women and they were strong and then you get balancing and you get other you know choreographers who really glommed on to this aesthetic of i want super tall like super super thin Mm -hmm. that that look and so that look became rewarded and then that caught on and then that just sort of Bread. Um, yeah. And it's obviously very prevalent in the modeling industry. And that's like a whole other discussion. But mm-hmm. do you know Catherine Morgan at all by chance? Uh, the name is familiar. No, I love Catherine Morgan. She is a ballet dancer. Um, she was a soloist with New York City Ballet and had this like starry career where she just like took off at like 18 from the word go and was probably going to become a principal very quickly and was doing all these huge roles. And then she discovered that she had an autoimmune disorder and she, you know, was living the life of a ballet dancer, eating very, very sensibly dancing like 14 hours a day and gained like 40 pounds in two weeks Mm -hmm. or something like it was not normal. Mm -hmm. And it became a problem. She ended up leaving city ballet so that she could get healthy. It took her a really long time to sort of figure out what was going on. And she now has this wonderful um, online YouTube presence and she's just a genius. And I highly recommend that everybody check her out. And she's still a dancer. She became a soloist recently with Miami city ballet. She has a whole video about why she left. And it has to do with the fact that she was a size two. She was hired as a size two. And then they started saying you're too fat to represent us. Well, and this is a girl who knows her body she's Mm -hmm. beautiful um a size two even in the dance world is very thin you know Mm -hmm. 
Um, and she's been very vocal about her, her journey. And when she was hired, she's like, you know, I'm in very good shape. I'm strong. I can do what I need to do, but you know, I'm never going to be the skinniest one in the room. And they're like, that's okay. We just want you to look your best. And then that quickly, mm -hmm. apparently, according to her story, it became apparent that that was not actually what they meant. Of course. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how you de-ingrain this idea that certain types of characters look a certain way or should mm -hmm. look a certain mm -hmm. way. I don't know how the idea of dancers gets expanded to like, all healthy people who can communicate mm -hmm. within a range and aesthetic without, you, you know, I don't, I don't know how this happens. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just, it's very, it's very frustrating. I think a lot of it is institutional because we're yeah. seeing the old guard starting to rotate out. We are seeing a lot of the regional theater artistic directors are all leaving. Mm -hmm. They are all stepping down. And a lot of times when they, you know, when they go into direct, um, they end up being the ones who are the most archaic and thought about the way people should look. The straight male directors always have comments about the women's bodies. Um, the female directors have comments about the women's bodies, men's yeah. bodies. Um, you know, there's, you know, going back to what you were saying, there are a lot of these dance companies across the country that are like training programs for young people that are still putting like weights of their kids on the wall. Mm -hmm. Like they, and you, we, uh, at AMDA, there was a girl that everybody didn't speak about it, but it was obvious that she was struggling health-wise yeah. because of an eating disorder because yeah. of the dance studio she came from and was just keeping it up. And it's just one of those things that like, that's going, being, not eating and being overly exhausted in order to get work done and make yourself be the best performer is not a badge of courage. It's how you, it's how you, it's how you end up burning out and having to, you know, medically take yourself out of your field. Yeah. But I think the conversation needs to start with the, no, that's literally, that's not how we speak about someone. That's not how we think about this. And so like little things I do as a designer is, you know, I've been working a lot in academia. I design for colleges a lot. Um, and even the regional theaters I've worked with, um, a lot of times we will have a little bit more of an extended process. And so sometimes I will get to start designing before we have a cast, which means I can, in my own way, I, I, um, I love still using uh, croaky and body reference sheets. And so mm -hmm. I understand a lot of times like what, like if I'm working with a college, I understand what a BFA program is going to look like versus what a BA program is going to look like in their student body. And so what I try to do is go through and push the boundaries of typically what a director would want to see mm -hmm. a body look like. And I will make sure that especially if it's an ensemble of characters and principles and things, I will make them not white bodies. I make them heavier bodies. Mm -hmm. I don't do the standard bodies because if it's before casting or casting is still open and things, if I can subtly influence mm. what a director is thinking for a role. And I get that a lot of times with regional theaters, they're still working with a stock ensemble a lot of the times. Right. But let me tell you, I know some curvier people who would be considered plus size, who I don't consider plus size, who can dance circles around anybody and you have room for them in your show. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's always funny when they'll be like, oh, we're not just going to have Jan be the heavy girl in Greece. <laughs> what if we 
made Cha-Cha a heavy girl because she's supposed to be the ugliest girl at San Bernardino, but she's slutty, so it's fine. So she'll also be the fat girl. Um, We're like- I hate when size is considered a personality trait. Or it's part of a casting breakdown, like right. it, like Tracy Turnblad. Yes, it's important. And right. It's important. Well, like unless it's Motor Tracy mouth. Turnblad, and it has to do with the plot of a show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just I wrote an article for Onstage recently where um, I it's it's about um, should people be cast based on personal identity, and I didn't mm-hmm. really go into sizeism there because it's a much more it gets into areas that don't necessarily impact other things Mm -hmm. but one of the things that i threw out um in talking about it is you know unless it really has to do with the plot of a show and like let's really think about what that means like tracy her size influences the plot of the show does jan's size in greece influence the plot of the show no 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 no. and like a one-off joke it does not constitute it influencing the plot of a show i did i i was in a production of 25th annual once that i was leaf coney bear and we had a thin barfay and everybody was gobsmacked and they were like well how do you do a thin barfay i was like i don't know nowhere in the script does it say he's fat he's just quirky and weird but everybody decided that because dan fogler played him that you have to have a fat um yeah you know uh, but it's one of those things that even uh you know we talk about theater education and my mentor who ended up being my second mentor in my graduate program who is an incredible designer incredible artist uh love her shout out to jen dasher she is amazing um you know before that it was always automatically told uh, in a lot of places that i've been mm-hmm. that as a designer or as an assistant designer for all women coming in you must pull body shapers, multiple bras to stack, multiple bras have different things because a, a smooth curved line to the body, um, is what's going to be important. And I was like, not for this character. Uh, I flat out was told my first year at my graduate school, I won't shout them out. Um, and my second year that a particular actress could not wear jeans because she would look dumpy and fat and would make my design look bad if I put her in jeans. And this was a beautiful actress that she, you know, she had uh, a very specific body type, but like she and I had a conversation about it. Other designers had worked with her before. Like there, like she always looked great on stage for what was deemed necessary as part of the show. Well, and that's the also, thing. It's about telling the, the story of a character. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, that's one of the reasons that it gets really complicated in the fashion world is, is a lot of designers kind of just want the equivalent of a hanger so that their yep. outfit, like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know, like, mm-hmm. just drapes, literally it floats. It just floats through the air. I mean, I, because I'm tiny, I was in a show once where the costume designer pulled, you know, tons of options. So we had tons of options, Mm -hmm. which was great. And the director decided to go with all of them and the shortest, shortest things they could put on me because it draped well and it like showed off the clothing well or something. And I literally just felt like a piece of meat just standing there being like, I guess I'm a hanger for these tiny clothes that I'm like, freezing in and there's there's literally no reason for me to have this many costumes they just like want to look at all the stuff but yeah sorry what what were you going no no no, you're good no and it's that's it's uh, that's such an interesting point because a lot of times the it's i don't find this working with younger directors and i don't even mean younger under 30 i mean younger directors under 50 um depending on you know where they come up with what they work with uh the, i 
a lot of them now, the younger ones will say, I don't need to be in your fittings. I don't need to be involved. Bring me fitting photos. We'll discuss it. Mm -hmm. um, and even shout out to some of the best choreographers I've worked with, uh, costume designing for them, you know, because there is with DMC, you want to see the body, but like there was a, a shout out to my grad school dance department. There was a movement to embrace dancers bodies and we had dancers of all body types. And so there was one of those things where I had to really break my preconceived idea of what a dancer should look like mm -hmm. or what a dance piece should look like in order to do that. And it was what made the dancers most comfortable. And literally if you could see the body and if they could do what they needed to do in them, that was important. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, it's having the people who don't like, honestly, to me, as long as the costumes are serving the purpose of the play and they're helping the actor build their character, the director shouldn't have a, doesn't need to have a say in if they look sexy or if the fit is right, because they should be able to trust that the designer is going to have had that conversation with before. Like, you know what Hetty in How to Succeed in Business needs to look like compared to Rosemary. Right. right. Um, those are things that if you've done your period research, you understand. But it also doesn't mean that we can't have a curvy role play Hetty. Yeah, well, all. of course. And and it also has to do with like different ideas of what a beautiful body is. Like on the one yes. hand, the idea of you know beautiful curves and all that mm -hmm. is gorgeous and and beautiful and all that on the flip side if you walk into a ballet universe being completely like flat and a straight line that's considered the most beautiful so yeah. it's the fact that i feel like sort of in whatever universe you're in there seems to be only one standard of what mm -hmm. that beauty is and what you said made me think of a couple of things which is i hear a lot of arguments on the technical side of things about why things are the way they are. One is that um, most often when you're dealing with like a Broadway show or whatnot, somebody mm -hmm. has to fit into the costume that somebody else wore, um, unless you're originating a role, you know, and costumes are built on you. Um, I knew somebody who got cast as the replacement to a, a lead on Broadway. And like two weeks before they were supposed to start rehearsals, they're like, oh, by the way, you have to come in for costume fitting because if you don't mm -hmm. fit into their costumes, we have to fire you. Mm -hmm. um, and that just has to do with, and in that, in that case, the person who had been there before them was just built a little smaller. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh shit, what am I going to do now? Um, the other thing I hear is, you know, like, well, the boys need to be able to like lift the girls and it not, you know, there's, there's a famous ballet school that notoriously has a rule for the women that regardless of your height, if you weigh anything over 110 pounds, you will not be allowed to participate in partnering classes because they feel that it's unfair for the boys to be required to lift that much weight and it could injure them, like regardless of height. Um, and also we're talking 110 pounds. Um, and so I hear all these arguments and you know, it, it's, you know, what do you, what do you do when you're in those kind of situations? What do you do when you don't have money to remake a costume and somebody mm -hmm. has to fit into it? What do you do if, you know, it's a consideration about somebody lifting somebody or whatnot? And it's just, I don't, I don't know. I say that's when you ask the boy and be like, because they're jacked. Male dancers are jacked. Even if you're a male principal jacked and yeah. actor and they're a little bit thinner, a dancer, like those boys can lift it. Like they could lift each other so right. they can lift. And that's well, the thing. And just, just to be clear, that's that example that I gave was for a ballet school. So theoretically yeah. we're dealing yes. with 
with students. boys, not yeah. men, even if they're like 17, you know. Well, but, but like still. this is also happening in musical theater programs. Like these yeah. boys are being encouraged to get shredded because that is what they think is going to get them cast because, you know, it's what. So the costume thing, this is something that we can talk about because I'm sorry, when you are a Broadway show that is doing multiple replacement casts, you are running. A lot of times you have broken even. Um, And it means the producers want to make the most of the amount of money they're making and they don't want to put money into replacement costumes. Um, The mouse is infamous for this, where they want the cheapest bottom line. Um, uh, hearing a lot about like what Greg Barnes went through putting Aladdin up where they, you know, didn't want to go with the beaters in New York who are going to cost a little bit more on the front end, mm-hmm. but know how to do these beautifully hand beaded techniques that were going to worry about longevity, where when you outsource it to another country, yes, it was going to get done for way quicker. The first time one of those threads snaps, all of that beating comes off. You then have to pay for a group of day laborers to come in, which is so expensive. You know, it's cost yeah. so much. Anybody out there that understands what the like dressers union rates and stuff are, it means you're spending way more and so like i get but like when you've got a show like wicked or phantom or even book of mormon at this point a lot of these shows that have been running forever you have no excuse from the amount of money that you're making Mm -hmm. to or you know it's it's similar to the argument of well glinda can't be black because glinda has to be blonde and i was like black women are blonde it just means and if they were saying we don't want to spend another you know thousand dollars on a different set of glinda wigs oh wait can we also Uh, have a minute for the fact that like glinda has to be white because she has to be like a natural blonde but alphabet's green like it like a everybody can be blonde and b even if they couldn't we're talking about oz we're like also, there are no rules. What <laughs> like, is the know. isn't the ultimate tea also that Glinda is a bottle blonde? Like, wouldn't yes. that just be the ultimate tea to this? That Glinda, the the bitchy perfect girl, is not. She's a bottle blonde. And you know it, that's whatever. And there was no argument when Can it we went also- to Japan or China oh, right. or Korea. Like, yeah. but then you know the fact that it took till last year for us to get our first right. black Glinda, and she is flawless and fantastic and looks so good in the costume she's just a phenomenal performer Um, i I would love to see jasmine guy as whitley from a different world as glinda (laughs) like well or or now or now with with her maybe madame morble i think it'd be so funny oh she would she's so talented oh my god oh miss (laughs) alphaba that would be great but But so I know, so like there's a big difference when we're talking Broadway, commercial tours, and then like regional theaters, because even your largest regional theater that are putting out Broadway transfers and things, your costume budget there is legitimately limited. And a lot of times that TDF costume (laughs) collection is why a lot of shows go up or being able to pull from, um, you know, main state musical theater, Oregon Shakespeare festival. They are some of the largest rental houses. Um, and so I understand the feasibility Mm -hmm. of wanting to do beauty and the beast, but you only have $8,000 for costumes. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to do a rental package or two, depending, uh, because they're anybody out there that's worth with the rental package, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. They show up and yeah. they're not exactly what you're expecting. Yeah. Um, and sure, 
your nobody has ever put anyone bigger than a size four on us, Bell that's used this rental package or, you know, that came from a theater that they bought because Main State often buys up other regional theaters when they close. And so in those situations I go, okay, how do we make this work? How do we, you know, a lot of times you will get the parameters of this is what the measurements of everything are. And sometimes it's, it's shitty and it's awful, but you either have to make the choice of we're going to do this rental package, but then we need this much extra to make this character's costumes again. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, we need to do this, do a smaller cast, or we need to do a different show. There is a way to make it work even on your region budgets. Um, yeah. But those I understand. And a lot of times... Um, you know, in opera, this isn't a big deal. People yeah. of all sizes have always sung opera, actually bigger people. But like you've got places like Glimmerglass and people like Santa Fe Opera, that opera is built with really a lot of seam allowance. They are built in so wow. you can really heavily alter a dress or a coat up and down yeah. three or four sizes, which is not something we do in musical theater. And I wish we did. Um, yeah. Because often this is a big difference between musical theater and what I would call, uh, you know, just the rest of kind of commercial theater. Um, they don't think twice about, you know, they didn't think twice about putting James Corden in One Men, Two Governors because yeah you know, it's, it's, he's a little bit heavier, but like he was great for the role or, you know, Nathan Lane is not heavy set, but he's a little girthier than, you know, your typical guy. So in those situations, they will figure something out, but like. And tailoring is so important. And especially if you're dealing with a production where you have a costumer who can sew there, a lot of times tailoring, it's not a big deal. And no matter what size you are, it's miraculous, but there seems to be this mentality of like, the pre-existing costumes and our ease is more important than right. The, and it's something I discovered. I saw some article about the fact that the reason that really famous celebrities like kind of look amazing all the time is because anything they buy, even if it's just like, you know, some t-shirt off the rack somewhere, they take it in to get tailored and it doesn't matter what size they are. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter any of that. It's the fact that it's tailored to their bodies. So it's going to flatter them as best as it possibly can. And I wish that more people knew about doing that. Yes. I wish tailoring. So we can thank Ralph Lauren in the 1990s and late eighties for this. So what used to happen, everybody talks about Mad Men being so gorgeous and it looks amazing. And the costumes for that show were fantastic. Marvelous Miss Maisel. Mm-hmm. Amazing costumes when people think about amazing and especially now because you know i'm uh i've been a disney human for some of my life Mm -hmm. um you know dapper day is a big thing there and that kind of 60s cut which actually looks great on a lot of people it looks fantastic um, but what the thing is is until recently most department stores had a fitting department they had a tailoring department Mm -hmm. the art of the tailor has is going away there are not many people that know how to do it um i had an interview with the theater recently where they had an on on site tailor and i went oh my god that's incredible i mean you know a lot of um stitchers and drapers kind of know how to tailor they know how to tailor enough but it's not something that's taught at a lot of institutions it's it is something that we're losing so unless you know from another tailor but people used to look great because no one you would never wear anything off the rack Mm -mm. take you would buy it you would go over to the fitting department you would pay a little bit extra Mm -hmm. and they would fit it to you you pick it up in two to three weeks and that is why men's suits looked flawless and you have men in their 60s and 70s who never want to get new suits because their suits were tailored to them and they were expensive 
expensive. Even when jeans became fast fashion or you were buying your jeans at department stores, you went and had your jeans tailored to you. The 70s, that is why the 70s is so nipped in. But then Ralph Lauren started capitalizing on the box fit and wearing things legitimately straight off of the rack. And that is why now, and like, I'm a big and tall person. I am, I'm a large and in charge, chunky up funky. And like, you know, you can standardize a patterning system through fast fashion. Um, uh, but like even big and tall things, nothing ever fits me correctly and i can't fit things on myself and finding a good tailor you know when i spend 15 dollars on a shirt Mm -hmm. you know as someone who doesn't make a ton of money i can't afford necessarily to go to a friend who i'm going to pay them everything that they are worth and pay 20 dollars to have something tailored to me but you know you say would we have a costumer who can sew if you this is a thing that comes down to staffing where scenic shops costume shops lighting shops sound shops Mm -hmm. never have enough people because they never allocate enough budget so half of your department like your wardrobe department half the time is run by interns who are making a hundred dollars a week and they're hungry but they're happy to be there you know thankfully it's changing this year we've had this discussion we're screaming about it but you know, you've got a costume shop of three or four people sometimes who can work miracles. But when you're doing four 30 person musicals in a summer, five, six in a summer, 12 in a year, you have to figure out where you're cutting budget, where you're doing things, what you can build. But like, if you've got a draper on staff who is worth their salt, they can up something so fast. If them and the, if they can have a good discussion with the designer and your designer knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of times when the director or artistic director stays out of the way, Mm -hmm. um, you can whip up something real quick. So say you want to do Mary Poppins, but you want to hire this amazing size 12 actress. Mm -hmm. Um, but like there's no rental house out there with a size 12 Mary Poppins package. Um, so you've got to go, cool. We need, how much is it going to cost if we rent everything and then build Mary? Um, or maybe we do start working more seam allowance into things that we know where you're going to rent or things you're going to want to go back to because things are going to drift. I mean, we had the incredible Bonnie Mulligan in. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I will scream to the earth about this woman. She's amazing, but she was in head over heels on Broadway Mm -hmm. and she was the gorgeous sister. She like the skinny small sister was the homely plain looking one and her costumes were gorgeous and they went so above and beyond. Like the costume design of that show was flawless. It did not run long enough. It was an amazing show Um, for gender reasons, for, for body reasons. Like, and you know, the idea of like embracing, you know, the, you want a woman to play the mom, but look exactly like she did when she was playing the ingenue role. Yeah. When you want your Clara and then the mom in Light in the Piazza be the same size, like right. you're an like, and it's it's also I don't understand why theater people at some point lost their empathy of realizing that people are people. Like the amount of like professionals that have looked me in the eye and they were like, that's just the way it is. We have a different standard here. And I was like, okay, but you're looking dumpy in your, in your knit stretch two way patterned long skirt and blouses. Like those things, like 
how dare you sit here and require so much out of a performer or so much out of these people, especially when it's coming to the, the training programs. Like, um, yeah. oh, well, the, the, there are, there is a school actually several, but one specifically that shall remain nameless that on the first day of senior year, they march all of the seniors into the auditorium and they say, men, you need to gain 30 pounds of muscle women. You need to lose 30 pounds. I don't care what size you are right now. You need to lose 30 pounds. Yep. And it's like, seriously but with mm -hmm. with the tailoring thing and whatnot i just if nothing else i wish that was more part of the conversation because i i, I agree so many people feel like there's something wrong with my body like oh like my rib cage is too big or like my arms are too this or that or, or whatnot when it's it's not that 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 that's the case it's that that's being accentuated because the piece of clothing that you're wearing isn't made to you it's not that your body is wrong it's the piece of clothing wasn't made to you. And I, I didn't even realize some of this stuff until I went in to be a fit model for a company. I didn't even know like what a fit mm -hmm. model was. I, I, this is what I assumed in my ignorance that they came up with like a formula about like what a size two, four, six yes. and up were based on like average body types or whatnot. And then they made a mannequin and then they made the clothes to that. It's not what they do. They find somebody who like is about a size four and then they tailor everything custom to that human being and then that's what they sell so that one human mm -hmm. being can go into that store and buy everything and it'll look great on them but you're not even comparing yourself to like a generic size four you're comparing yeah. yourself to this particular human being who this stuff was tailored on yeah. and in no universe is that going to like end well and can I tell you, this is actually crossing into a conversation of ableism in theater, which we're now yeah. having the conversation of, uh, you know, if you're not training and like a lot of this, I have to be honest, goes back to theatrical training programs. Yeah, It's mm -hmm. the same as like when people are going, well, you know, we could have hired a, 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 a costume designer of color to design our production of color purple, but just no one applied. And it's like, okay, where does this start? And it starts all the right. way back in like middle and high school oh, of showing these kids. So the, I think a lot of that starts there because also like, I, you know, I, when having Ali Stoker in mm -hmm. Spring Awakening and then having her in Oklahoma and then yeah. the discussion of, uh, so I'm a big comic book fan. I love superhero movies mm -hmm. and having list watching conversations with the costume designers and Brian Singer as they, as they went through designing the original X-Men films mm -hmm. and realizing that they didn't understand why Patrick Stewart looked quote unquote dumpy oh in all of God. his suits. Oh. And it's because no one realized that when you're sitting all the time, when you are chair bound, if you have crutches, if you have some sort of braces on, yeah. they all affect how things lay on your body, yes. how, how difficult or easy it is for you to get into clothing. Yeah. Um, and even now that we're even having the conversation about like having actors on the autism spectrum play Christopher in Curious Incident, yeah. you're going to have to address certain issues that come with sensory awareness, yeah. come with like body things that like, you yeah. need to be able to address and if if we're already having the least nuanced conversations about <laughs> body and weight yeah. you're never gonna be able to have a nuanced conversation about any other actor's bodies like so it's yeah. just one of those things that like i get that the actor's body is part of their package but we need to stop acting 
like it makes like it somehow deems their worthiness or their talent ability um or like you know you you know this for years the in wicked the glinda's best friend there was a black girl and then a heavy girl who were always and then the heavy girl would be a a 27 year old madame morrible cover you know it's these things that like they get get tracked in and so then you have to find somebody who is Mm -hmm. that this is where typing comes in where somebody who's that same type to put into that track. And the sad thing is, I think it comes out of an organic place where theoretically when they were casting the original Wicked and they were having rehearsals, they had unique human beings in front of them and they were creating roles for those unique human beings. Mm -hmm. But then it starts to fall into, uh, well, now we have to just recreate that with everybody that we cast. And I think honestly, a lot of it comes down to budget allocation for from the Broadway show to the community theater Mm -hmm. Um, that, they still don't acknowledge that what technicians and designers do is such an important part of it. They expect it to happen. They expect that it is a thing that needs that like costumes will happen. The set will happen and they will look gorgeous and flawless, (laughs) but you, but then you turn around and you're like, so we're doing mama Mia. Here's $250. Um, or even like the re like even the regional theaters, then those designers and those costume shops are literally doing the gay Lord's work. They are (laughs) pure miracles, but it's one of those things that the budget is not being allocated properly. And it is also because we're still not having the conversation about subsidized theater. um, oh, that's a I whole other giant. Love, I love going to see theater on the West End, seeing yes. theater off West End, Fringe, yes. because the the English theater, and I'm sure someone's rolling their eyes at me, they have embraced different body types. They have embraced the idea of, of not white bodies on stage. They've embraced the idea of not thin bodies on stage. Um, well, and, a lot, and, and it's, a lot of it is because of subsidies, because they're not mm-hmm. purely relying on ticket sales to make their money yep. back. And it's why they can be experimental. It's like, cool, we can do this thing that we don't know if it's going to be successful, but we believe in it because it, even mm-hmm. if we don't sell a bunch of tickets. And that's one of the things that bothers me with a lot of theater is it's it's the same idea. I mean, I guess it gets into the same thing as sort of every other area of, of life about like sex sells. So we're going to yep. put what we deem the sexiest bodies on stage because it's mm-hmm. going to like bring the people in. So let's put all the showgirls in like itty bitty costumes and get beefcake guys because people are going to buy tickets just because they want to see quote unquote, like sexy people on stage, Mm -hmm. which is so it's such an uncomfortable thing, especially if you suddenly realize that you have been cast to fill that role. Yes. It's horrible. So let me ask you a a few. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And one ties into, into that. Um, One of the things that I notice is there's a difference in ensemble needs in general between like golden age musicals and more contemporary musicals. For example, I'm thinking about like the beautiful tap dancing ensemble of women that's in like a lot of golden age musicals versus the dance ensemble in Jagged Little Pill, which is made up of so many different types of people, so many different body types, different experts in different dance styles. And it's this, and Hades Town too, I think is a great Mm -hmm. example of it. It's this like eclectic, mashup of people but part of that difference is that the golden age sort of thing in a similar way to the ballet world is looking for uniformity it's like the Mm -hmm. rockette thing they're looking for and the end of a chorus line too i mean it's the whole point of a chorus line they're looking for the magic of 
an ensemble of identical people doing this choreography, which when you get that looks pretty cool, versus an eclectic mix of an ensemble made up of individuals. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess part of my question is, how do you think we can reconcile those two things? How do you think that we can be more body aware and conscious and open with the sort of uniform thing um, do we can we only do that if we have eclectic ensembles? Where do you think that that sort of fits into the mix? So I think there is a spirituality, there is an almost religious way that we treat golden age musicals. Mm -hmm. And I think that needs to start. We need to start breaking it down. I'm also of the I'm also of the ilk that like I understand how original theater has to run. If you wanna do that progressive new rock musical that came out six years ago, but your community's still not ready for it, you have to do Guys and Dolls. You have to do West Side Story. Yeah. Um, you have to do a golden age show so that the rich old white people will come so that you can then do your, your, you know, your, your version of spring awakening so that your, you know, you can get your 20 something theater audience to come. And do you think that that's going to change as time goes by? And like that generation is no longer here. So, and maybe the new generation has different tastes. So from working in the regional theater, what I'll tell you is there is a generational gap of the people that are buying tickets right now. Yeah. A lot of people, there is like my age group where it's like this snob, theater kids who have or they were the snobby theater kid right. they maybe don't work in theater but they're theater adjacent new york city gays i'm looking at you um <laughs> where they have the expectations of both the older and younger audiences because they were raised with the the mgm musicals of the 40s 50s and 60s on vhs mm -hmm. verse and but they were also there as you know they you know we were in high school when wicked and hairspray started we were in college when spring awakening started so it was one of those things where it's like um you know they watch theater change but i do think it's going to change because this the group of young people who are graduating out of a lot of the institutions and into the workforce mm -hmm. are so revolutionary they are screaming for change they are demanding yeah. it because things need to change yeah. um and so i think we can still address so what i'm going to say is yes on both parts but i think we have this idea of what golden age is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. Like I hate when I see company, which is I know just outside of golden age, it's just outside of golden age. I get that. Mm -hmm. um, but when you've got, or, uh, you know, if you get something like gypsy, and yeah. you have a very specific idea of what it should look like, throw that out because that is what the original Broadway productions looked at yeah. because societally we we honored certain things but this was also a time where everybody smoked all these things and right. so we're lucky all those people are still alive they are pickled in gin and marlboro reds <laughs> like um you know but it is a thing i think we have to change our perspective and realize that like if you go and look at what your family's photos look like from the time that's what i want an ensemble to look like in a golden age musical mm -hmm. i want oklahoma to look scrappy i want the women to be larger i want because at the end of the day the thing with golden age musicals is very few people actually do the proper historical research for That's them. Very true. And so when you're doing a more contemporary show, we're reflecting what a contemporary, even art and fashion scene looks like. And so jagged little pill is going to look really different. Or like the fact that like, 
we had four or five plus size people in American Idiot. We had people, women with short hair. We had so many people of color um, where everybody was like, but what race are they? And we're like, but that doesn't matter. You know, um, even comparing them to what hair had looked like the year before, because like the Diane Paulus hair, while it was flawless, (laughs) you know, you had one plus size girl and then you had like Josh Lehman because he had to play Margaret Mead. Like you typically (laughs) get one chubby guy in hair because they have to play Margaret Mead, but you're like, "Um, we we only want to show show people who look gorgeous naked because we still have to do hair naked. And my question is, but do you have to, Right? do you have to anymore? Do we need the nudity for hair? Um, I'm sure somebody at home is screaming and turning off her podcast right now. And I, apologize. <laughs> but I think if we realign how we look at people and also theaters need to keep going back and looking at who is showing up every year for their auditions mm-hmm. and the fact that we have theaters who are still accepting video auditions and then don't look at a single fucking one is a travesty because you're only then acknowledging the people who are either in new york if you have the ability to go cast in new york or the people who are the younger people typically who are wealthy enough to come to your counter calls and so i think we need to realign and really forcing directors and forcing creative teams to really do that research and really look at what people look like. So I'm giving you a big non-answer, but I say, (laughs) yes, we can have it both ways. You can have, and um, yeah, I think you can have a guys and dolls where the hot box girls are all a little bit different shaped. you know, or you've got your how to succeed. Some of your, you know, some of your guys should be heavy set because let me tell you, there are two body types in the 1960s. We either get Don Draper or we get like dumpy old white guy. Like those are the two <laughs> body types we get. And there's lots of things in between. Yeah. And so I think again, they're like, oh, it's a big dancing show. There is a preconceived notion that larger bodies are not beautiful when they move. They're not beautiful when they dance, which is just not true. Mm-hmm. And it's the same as like, Um, You know, having somebody who is very thin, who isn't hippie, a woman who doesn't have the hourglass body is still beautiful. And so it's one of those things that we need to stop with the inachievable body goals. And the thing is, is if we don't start demanding from top to bottom an industry reorganization and a new industry standard, we're going to be having this conversation again in 10 years as we have a lot of people who like me, if I just, you know, there are a lot of heavyset people and a lot of like thinner girls that like don't you know the fact that girls are still encouraged to get some sort of plastic surgery when they are in musical theater school is abhorrent Mm -hmm. the fact that you still have girls like from long island who joke about getting nose jobs or boob jobs for their bar mitzvah like you know or or for graduation like it's a joke but is it really a joke at the end of the day when those are the things that we think we need to do in order you know we have things like chorus line is a great thing and Michael Bennett changed the world forever with that show. But like Dance 10 Looks 3, it's so funny. And maybe I'm being overly woke and it's a joke, but at the same time, how many women have gone through that in order to get a career? Or I'm always like, how many, how many young perform? And it's also a thing, if you want your actors to be healthy, you need to pay everyone from the top to the bottom a living wage where they can be healthy, where you can encourage them to eat a better diet. Because some of those ensemble kids who are in training programs and regional theaters, they're getting no money. They're paying to be there and they still have to survive, do eight shows a week plus classes Mm -hmm. and somehow find a way to eat that's not fast food or like frozen meals. Like it's one of those things that like, 
we have to demand an industry restaging now. And it starts with everyone from the people, the producers and the board of directors who are funding it to the artistic directors, to the directors, to our associate artists and our designers. Like, you know, I worked with a designer not too long ago who said that they only like dressing hot people because it's more fun. And I was like, fuck off. I don't fuck off. That's disgusting. That's like, disgusting. like I want interesting bodies in my show. I want my shows and predominantly I work in a lot of new work. I work in a lot of devised theater. Yeah. Um, I love that kind of thing. I love queer voices and unrepresented mm -hmm. voices in, in theater. Like if I don't see someone that looks like me on stage, then like, yeah. as like a white person, I'm like, whatever, it's fine. But I want to hear queer voices. I want to see people who are larger and smaller. Like I want, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't need the the gorgeous muscle bodies of Broadway anymore because those people are so hardworking, but there's so much pressure and kind of looping back to what you originally said, yeah. I, that was an op-ed piece where someone was like, I'm afraid I'm too heavy to return to theater. Yeah. And it's an actor literally talking about that. And it's like, yeah, sure. They've got to go back into conditioning and some, just because the stamina of eight shows a week is a crazy stamina that you must right. have. Yeah. And you do have to be healthy because even working eight shows a week, when you're not yeah. being a dresser, when I'm running eight shows a week, I am way healthier. I realign my diet in a different way because I need to keep up with those actors. My job is just as difficult backstage as theirs is. Yeah. And so I, you know, there is a health that we need to be healthy without damaging someone's psyche and putting people through trauma so they feel that they have to quit especially for like women in theater who are told they're like oh you're 30 now you're not going to work till you can play the mom role when you're 45 so like go be a realtor go do this or the fact that they don't want to help i'm going to point out audra and scott rudin with um shuffle along and the bullshit of them blaming the show closing on audra being pregnant or going back to uh, the old stories of Emily Skinner and when her weight would fluctuate in the original sideshow. Like, there, you know, those are stories now um, where the women were difficult and had to make a point. But I was like, no, they were just, their bodies were just doing what their bodies were meant to do. Yeah. And it was like the costume designer of Shuffle Along, what, like the blue dress that she was in for that show, her costumes were great. She was doing high kicks and I didn't even realize she was eight months pregnant on the Tony Awards that yeah. year because the costume designer knows what they are doing but like of course women are going to get pregnant in the middle of a run of a show they should be able to get pregnant they should be able to have a bad time and gain 20 pounds and their costumes should be able to you know well, and, i'm sure and somebody's there's, yelling there's at me clause in in most shows where you cannot gain or lose mm -hmm. and you can't fluctuate in either direction like 10 pounds because or they I can't adjust the costume then. i think about the young kids on broadway where there's this awful equity where it's like what is it like 10 pounds, three inches, something crazy yeah. like that. Well, I, where was, like, I wasn't a child on Broadway, but I was a professional child actor in LA from a very young age. And yeah, it's, it's a thing you can't grow. I think it's more about height than weight, but weight is a factor to it. You can't grow a certain amount or you'll grow, literally grow out of the role. And I remember doing these roles that I loved as a kid and being very, very aware that my time to be able to play that role was limited. And then it was mm -hmm. never going to come again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's interesting what you said, something that you said before, it, it really hit home to me because I feel like 
something that I love about my career and what I can do as a performer is I'm very much a chameleon. I'm somebody, I look very different depending on what you put me in, how you style my hair, the mm -hmm, wig you put mm -hmm. me in. Absolutely. And it's great. And it's fun because I can, you know, I'm the girl that I can play Hamlet and then, mm -hmm. you know, I can play this, you know, girly girl over here, whatnot. Like I can disappear into roles and I like being able to be a chameleon, but, and I can't believe I'm like saying this in like a podcast. I've like never felt beautiful. Mm -hmm. like ever. And I feel like when I have to, when I have to, when I get to go in for roles that call for like, you know, a beautiful person, I feel like I can play that. Mm -hmm. Like I can play act doing that. I can dress mm -hmm. a certain way. I can do my makeup a certain way. I can, you know, wear certain things, but I feel like, cool, this is me being a chameleon and pretending to be a beautiful person. Yeah. Um, and you know, a that's a whole complicated thing that I'm sure every woman and probably every human being out there can relate to, but, you know, have having people speak about our bodies in the way that we look in a certain way doesn't help. And I'm somebody who in terms of weight is a tinier person. So I already mm -hmm. am aware that I have a privilege in that respect that other people don't. And I still am made to feel like such shit mm -hmm. about my body. Um, Here's another question for you, and it's a controversial question, but I hear it brought up a lot. I'm going to try to figure out a way to phrase it mm -hmm. well, which I'm probably going to butcher. Um, I feel like there's two things going on in our society, and I hear both of them commented on. One is the fact that we just really do need to change the way we look at size and bodies, just mm -hmm. period, as human beings. The other is the fact that completely unrelated to the entertainment industry, the way that our world functions in terms of eating accessibility, um, healthy food, um, exercise, the fact that like most people, you know, work jobs where they can't get any physical exercise mm -hmm. whatsoever and can only afford, you know, certain things to eat means that the world as a whole is facing this obesity crisis, mm -hmm. which a lot of times is not healthy. It's not a situation yeah. of this is my body and I'm very healthy and I'm able to do everything. You need to stop having such like archaic ideas. And it is getting to a place where it really isn't healthy and it's dangerous for us as a society. And mm -hmm. the system is kind of broken because we all need to have access to healthy food. We all need to have access to a daily schedule that allows us to not just be replacements for machines. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I have heard the discussion come up that in being more open and accepting of larger body sizes in all roles in the entertainment industry is actually just giving a pass to maybe some of the negative things about the way our world works. And it's, it is sort of saying, I'm not saying that I'm saying this, but I've heard this argument mm -hmm. is sort of giving a pass and being like, well, let's reward obesity and let's reward people not taking care of themselves. And let's reward the way the world is and not do anything to try to help make the world healthier. How do you reconcile mm -hmm. those two ideas? And how do we both embrace everybody at every size that they are, but also legitimately encourage health and a ability to do whatever you can and people eating healthily and, and mm -hmm. all, how do you reconcile those things and embrace both of them? Okay. I think it's really important to talk about that. This is a very specifically American issue. Mm -hmm. Anybody that has traveled yes. internationally, you'll always, you know, everybody goes, well, don't buy clothes in Japan or China because they're way smaller. Right. Or even like when I travel to the UK, everything's off by about a size. Yeah. 
Um, I think when you look at um, obesity rates in other countries, um, That's a very and, how, good point. and how their accessibility of food. So mm -hmm. most, I think where we have to start is looking at um, the fundamental idea of food wastelands or food deserts. Um, and we're even talking in New York City, in LA, in places where entertainment is created, in Atlanta, um, in Memphis, those kinds of places, Toronto, um, Canada, it's not quite as bad of an issue there. The places where these things are made and where the beautiful people are supposed to be healthy, inexpensive food isn't accessible to most people. Yeah. And we're still battling right now a wage a wage issue. So like, you know, it is cheaper for a lot of people in the long run. Like if you work with someone and you go, okay, how can we do meal planning? But most families do not have the time or money to actively think about meal planning on a large scale. And like working with like, you know, kids can be picky. And like, I know most of my American friends are so picky about what they eat even as adults. And so I think we have to systematically look at it as a society where our country doesn't actually favor us being healthy because they make so much money off of us being sick and in a medical Absolutely. system. Absolutely. And so I think this is a very American issue where we mm -hmm. start with this. I agree with and that. So I think systematically, um, now I don't, I think we have to acknowledge that like, cause you have people who they can work out, they can be on the most strict diet and they can, they'll be bigger, but they'll be healthy. Yeah. Like Absolutely. even I am large, um, but like when I get blood work done most of the time, they're like, wow, you're surprisingly healthy for someone in your wave. Um, we also need to get rid of like toxic ideas, like body mass index and those things like Gosh. propagating yeah. it within the medical industry. Like the, the thing yeah. is we need to stop looking at medical as an industry. We need to stop looking at food as an industry as pharmacy yeah. as an industry. Yeah. Um, the fact that we're in a country where people are arguing if access to clean water and food is and health is a human right. We need a and, revival of urine town like really badly. And <laughs> most places, your politicians don't think you and your family having access to the things that the human body requires to live is not a basic human right. right. And so like, fuck them. Uh, and everybody needs to kind of stand up. So I'd say that's where we have to start because systematically once that starts but like we also have to acknowledge that like when you're like people love stories like mayor of east town um august osage county um anything martin mcdonough essentially yeah. tracy Letts, yeah. any of these like down home stories even like hereditary these stories are of people who are from the grass-fed planes and mm -hmm. people are going to look different everywhere. We're not all going to be like gorgeous and blonde just because we get some utopian food society. Right, My right. family is genetically heavier. Like there yeah. are countries where people are genetically heavier. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, I think the idea of being like, oh, we're propagating and encouraging obesity and things, that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, when you've got people like Lizzo that like are just trying to get women to accept that their bodies are all going to look different and that you are beautiful no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, it's like going back to your comment, it's like just because I'm heavy uh, playing Judd doesn't mean I'm not handsome playing yeah. Judd. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things that like, there are a lot of, there are a lot of like, thicker guys that are they're like broadway chubby i guess but they're not actually chubby um 
but like they're so <laughs> fucking hot. they're so hot well it's and everybody at home knows what i'm talking about like broadway hot is like everywhere else you know yeah. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're an unattainable everywhere else, but like, yeah. but then when I hear my Broadway friends that are like, I moved to LA and I was told I was so ugly and uh, out of yeah. shape. And I was like, shut the fuck up. But well, it's so true. It's LA so true. Film. I mean, it does. The camera adds 10 pounds. So you have to be like 10 pounds underweight. And also from, from filming on TV shows and stuff, it's so fascinating. Almost every time that I've done a TV show, they've put me in a garment that is a size too big for me so that mm -hmm. I will look even smaller. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is like, yeah. When I did TV work a lot, um, you know, I'm like everybody else. I did my rounds of all the law and orders and I did a show called mercy as well. And even like I did a ton of pilot season was always great for me. I worked a ton Did much get picked up. No. Um, mm -hmm. but like, um, I did a show called mercy that lasted one season and they, I had to go all the way out to Jersey for a fitting where they knew that I was like a three X and like a 44 waist, but they were like, here's an extra large and a 40, let's try it out. And they were like, oh, I guess we have to go to Kohl's or like, where would we find big and tall? And I was like, I shouldn't tell you how to do your jobs as your wardrobe department. And so I ended up looking like a 60 year old man because they went to like Dillard's or wherever and like yeah. just found the, the one rack of big and tall clothing. And so, you know, it's one of those things that I, um, it's 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 so strange but i think when we're going how can we start this i think there's a very clear way of where we have to start and it's an entire systematic change and that yeah. is scary for a lot of people mm -hmm. but if people start saying things and people you know this is just like the idea with scott rudin where yeah. people are like well you can't expect people to sacrifice their livelihood and i'm like sure we can we can absolutely request this and so you know we need to start calling out directors and producers that are saying these problematic things on both sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, sorry to answer this question. I'm gonna wrap that up, sorry. Um, I don't think we're propagating the idea of like encouraging obesity. I think we're encouraging people to discover what their natural healthy body is, yeah. which is going to be smaller than where most of us are. But you also have to acknowledge that sometimes people are not gonna be able to get smaller in a healthy way than they already are. Because like, you can't tell me keto is long-term healthy eating that much saturated. Right. Like there are just things like that, that like you can't, shock your body into it yeah. or like i love drag race i love drag and that, that kind of thing and so you know during covid and things a lot of the queens haven't been able to perform and a lot of fans have been like girl you got fat during this oh, and it was like what else are you supposed to expect from us and you can't suddenly also, be like side note, oh. unless you have not gained an ounce you already shouldn't be making comments you shouldn't be anyway also <laughs> like they're probably some scrubby ass kid from kansas who's sitting there in a stained tank top and shorts <laughs> in in their three-bedroom apartment so i like i don't want to hear shit from anybody calling anybody else fat. Those are those things that like, yeah. these are all things that we can daily do. And I am a big proponent of don't be afraid that it's going to lose you your job to call out something that is problematic side with your stage manager. I typically like, yeah. especially in theater, your stage manager is going to be your biggest person. And a lot of time, not biggest person, but your biggest advocate. <laughs> and a lot of the times you have to figure out, like sometimes you do have an emotionally manipulative stage manager and they yeah. work with the director because the director is also emotionally manipulative yeah. and that's why they get hired together. But yeah. it's like finding the people who can be your best resources and start calling that shit out. Start calling it out publicly. We need to start handling these things because yeah. encouraging having 
two big bodies on stage that are also like or and also not making one of the the heavy people making sure it's a black woman like that we need to get out of that as well like right. those are those things that like we need to stop propagating those things and i think it's something that we can all do as industry-wide we can do it community-wide mm -hmm. um especially in a lot of theater communities in cities because we have so many regional theaters that are elsewhere that are doing incredible work but it's propagating a really toxic community between different theaters and we have to start calling each other out on that and not being afraid that somebody's going to be able to ruin our career because of it because mm -hmm. it's going to be better for everyone in the long run yeah. And I just think it's time that we do that because a body is a beautiful body and that body deserves to be on stage or working on stage or working adjacent because, you know, you're the size of your body, big or small, does not dictate your talent. And we should be going with talent first yeah. and we're still not. And that is a shame. And I think so much of it is to, to, I think a lot of people like what you see of a show first is kind of what sticks in your mind. You know, like the first Lori in Oklahoma you see, if you then see something else like, you know, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but a thought that passes through your mind is like, oh, she doesn't look like how I like think mm -hmm. of Lori looking. And it's like, that's fine. That's a thought. It's great. But like, we need to stop treating that as a rule. You know, and this is also a hey, my regional people, my universities and my community theaters stop copying something just because you saw it on Broadway or you saw it on a tour or in a performance because you are ripping off that designer's work. You're ripping off another actor's work and you're not actually doing real honest work with your people. Mm -hmm. So like we need to stop. I agree with you where I go. Oh, this just isn't the same because it's not this. But like sometimes like I saw a production of Little Shop of Horrors at Hangar Theater that was mm -hmm. so beautiful and next to normal as well one right after the other that they went so against type and they just told the story in a most beautiful honest way mm -hmm. and like it upset some people but like they told the best version of those and those are to this day the both and like, like i watched it so much on broadway and that production was so good like full of absolutely fantastic but like this regional production was just so honest and so guttural. Yeah. i don't want to see another production of it because it was just so perfect because they threw out the preconceived idea and focused on the story. And I think that's right. what we have to do. Um, and also change like how people are watching theater because we also have to accept that the audience is a part of the team making mm -hmm. a show. Like you yeah. have to know, but we have to start retraining the audiences. Like you have to retrain them. It's not all Oklahoma and guys and dolls and you know, doing Jesus Christ superstars, your edgy rock show. Like that's not cutting it anymore. Like we've got to start retraining everyone from the top to the bottom. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's such a challenging thing and it it's, is. and it's frustrating and I don't know. And I, I really hate that it starts at such a young age uh -huh. of people kind of intrinsically knowing what's expected mm -hmm. of them based on what they look like mm -hmm. at such a young age. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I mean, this, this isn't, this is a not directly related to our discussion, but I remember um, being in college at one point and like one of the heads of, of some, some music program, he's like, this belting thing is a fad. You need to focus on like operetta stuff. And I see that kind of mentality in everything to mm -hmm. do with education. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, there's a lot of out of touchness. Um, yes. and you know, I don't, I, I don't know. And it's, and it's being said in such a way that like, you know, you want approval from these people, you need approval because you don't want to flunk out of their classes. Um, you know, you're a baby, you don't know the real world yet. 
necessarily. Um, and it's, it's just, it starts there. You know? And my big thing there is a lot of those people have not worked professionally in 20 plus years, 10 plus years. They have no actual gauge on what the industry standard is anymore or what is happening in the industry other than what they read on Broadway, Broadway world. Like that is the thing. A lot of these educators are doing so much damage to their students yeah. and they're burning people out so early and they're developing such toxic traits. It's also like pitting all women against each other in a musical theater program. So you are so alone and you're attacking other women. And so you go to New York or you try to make it in LA and you don't have friends, which is so alienating mm -hmm. because you don't realize that you all can be the same type and you can support each other. Well, and, and there are more than can, enough jobs to go around. Well, and that there's a difference between being the same physical type and the mm -hmm. same, like for lack of a better word, like spiritual type. Absolutely. Um, like in this article that I wrote, I said, you know, you could have two women that are the same height, same weight, both blonde, look identical in the room, and one could be giving you total Glinda energy, and the mm -hmm. other could be giving you Squeaky From from Assassins. Absolutely. You know, like those are two different souls. Mm -hmm. And I'm so fortunate. I got to study with Sam Christensen, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but there's a wonderful guy, John Dapolito, who um, does similar things that I highly recommend you check out. And it's about like discovering in essence, what your like inner type is. And mm. that's something that's been so freeing for me because it doesn't matter if you physically look like everybody else that's in the room, you are a different human being and what makes you special and unique is what's gonna make you special and unique in the role. And I wish that, I wish there was not so much emphasis on people's physicality because there's already gonna be things that you like can't argue with, like height relates to age on stage. You mm -hmm. can't totally argue with that. Um, there, there's already going to be things that you're wrestling with mm -hmm. and you know what size somebody thinks you should be especially when it's often in the context of the people behind the table wanting to cast somebody that they personally mm -hmm. think is hot and want to stare at for the rehearsal process which i've seen happen or be inappropriate with which exactly. is disgusting yep yep um i mean i've been in auditions for major shows like uh, behind the table, like as a reader or whatnot, mm -hmm. where please excuse the crassness, but I've literally had some, seen somebody walk out of the room and had one of the people in charge be like, well, I wouldn't fuck them. And yep. then, so it's like done. And I'm like, that's like one of the most gorgeous human beings I've ever seen. Like what, and even if it wasn't, what does that matter? Like, yep. even if they weren't stunning, what does it matter? Yep. It's, and it's, it's just, awful. Yeah. It's absolutely awful. Like. I just, you're so it's and it's also one of those things of like you're so many people are leaving training programs with books that aren't prepared for them or they're leaving a training program without a book they weren't told how to put their book together yeah. and so all they have is like the classroom work that they did and like you know we're giving you know a plus this happens with plus size women a lot they get the mom roles they get they get the the bitchy funny roles mm -hmm. but so you've got women who are 21 men who are 21 or 22 who are singing roles that are 30 years too old for them yeah. and you know most of those casting directors you're actually in front of is an assistant to an assistant to an assistant yeah. recasting a show and so all they want to do is find somebody that checks the boxes that the other people checked before it right um yeah. and it was one of those where you know, uh, being called in a lot for, 
I went out for a lot of experimental shows that had specifically heavy parts, mm -hmm. but they wanted like femme heavy guys who were like scrouching Alex Newell tenors. And that was <laughs> yeah. the same thing for everyone. Yeah. And I was like, Alex Newell is incredible, but I am not that human. Right. Or they'd be like, oh, we wanted a bigger person, but like not you big. And well, but the like, other thing that I don't understand- What is that supposed is, to mean? Like, and it's, it's one of the reasons I love costuming is let's look at the transformative power of costuming. Thank you. For example- Let the designer do their job. For example, I have played Val in a chorus line. If you were to look at me in jeans and a t-shirt, that's not the role that you would cast right. me as in a chorus line. I had some great padding. I had some great, you know, costuming. It was delightful. You know, it's, it's, it's like costuming can do wonderful, magical things. And that's, I know that's, that's one thing I do appreciate about, I was going to say my body, but I mean, my body as like, everybody should feel this way about your body yeah. is it can be kind of like actor neutral. And then you can do things on it to transform into a character. And mm -hmm. I think that's super fun and exciting. And it's not like there, there's, a, there's a story that um, is an urban legend. I don't know the details, so I can't prove if it's true or not, but I, I had it from a reliable source that allegedly a long time ago, back when they auditioned for shows on Broadway stages, um, they were having auditions for some show. And this girl came um, who she had done some stuff and she knew that she was perfect for this part. Mm -hmm. And she went on stage and they were doing typing and she instantly got typed out. Mm -hmm. And she was really confused and she happened to know the stage manager. And so she just went up to the stage manager and just said, hey, I was just curious if you happen to know why I was typed out because I think that I'm really right for this part. And they said, oh, they want somebody blonde. And she's like, what? And they're like, well, they want somebody blonde. So they're kind of only paying attention to the blondes. She got really angry. She went out, she bought herself a blonde wig, waited two hours, went back to the audition, got the part, got all sorts of accolades for it. And, and I, I, I just wish that we could look at the transformative power of all the magic of theater mm -hmm. because it can do amazing things. On the negative side of that, I do know that somebody that was in the national tour of Hairspray who was understudying Penny, Amber, and Tracy for like financial budgetary reasons was like a size two. And when she had to go on as Tracy, they just like gave her a, a you know, a padded suit yep. with a head that didn't really match the rest of it. And it's like, well, yep. if you can be, I'm not saying that's appropriate or that should ever have been done, but if you can be creative on that end, can we maybe be creative like on the positive end of casting? Mm -hmm. It's like, if you were doing ragtime, you hopefully would not cast one person to be the understudy for Sarah and mother, you know, like hopefully that would not happen. So it shouldn't be happening in other instances too. Well, Maddie, thank you so much for being on. This is such food for thought. I wish that we could have some like answers to just wrap it up with and like send out into the world. But I hope that everybody listens and really thinks about this and can engage in more conversations. And maybe we'll have to do a follow-up at some point to chat about that. this, but I think you are gorgeous and handsome and should be able to play everything. And thank you for all the advocacy that you're doing, A, just by you being you, but also through your work as a costumer and a stage manager and, and an arts person. So thank you so much for that. And are there any last thoughts you want to leave anybody with? 
No, I just think if you, I want to encourage us, we're reopening because a lot of theaters are reopening, Broadway's reopening, tours are coming back. Mm -hmm. If you see something happening in your theater, you got to stand up and say something. We have to work on all levels to change. This includes your institutions where you're going to school. This includes your community theater. This includes coming back to your Broadway ensemble. Like mm -hmm. we all must stand up and do the work now if we want a better industry in 10 years. So it is, it is on every one of us to do the work. So and on the flip side of that, work. it is all of our jobs to do something, but I would especially love to bring up the people in positions of power who yes. do have money and who are not going to lose their jobs based on decisions yes. that it, it is all of our jobs, but it shouldn't be all of our jobs. It shouldn't be all of our jobs. <laughs> to have to risk yep. a lot. So if yep. you are in one of those positions, please, you know, accept the mantle that you have been given and the privilege mm -hmm. that you have been given to really make a difference in this area. Listen to your people and listen to your community. And mm -hmm. especially my regional theater folks, go out and actually understand who your community is. It's not just your rich white subscribers. Go out and understand the community because if you are a not-for-profit and you are getting not-for-profit status, you need to be out serving your community and working yeah. with them in any way, shape, or form you can. So really understand who your community is. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And um, tell all our listeners how they can find out more about you, where they can stalk you. You also have your own podcast. I do have my own podcast over on the Certain POV Podcast Network. Uh, it's called Saturday Morning Confidential. Ashley uh, has done several episodes with me. I love doing so it. So that is uh, on our Instagram. If you find us at SMC Pod, uh, there's a link tree on there. And by the time this runs, my professional Instagram should be up because I realized I should have one for a while. So that is MR Limerick designs on Instagram. Um, and so that is where you can find me. I am available for bookings. Yes, please, uh, please as hire. Reopening, as theaters are reopening, um, I would love to come and work with all of you across yes. the country and make some fun new art in our new age with you all. So yes. reach out, get a hold of me. Please hire Maddie because he's brilliant. <laughs> he's very good at his job. He's such a kind human being and he's really looking out for all of these things. Like he, he does this because he loves it. And he takes all of these different things into account when he's designing. So he's a real ad advantageous person to have on a creative team. So well, thanks, Queen. I appreciate that. Oh, thank you.